name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brethren in Christ, Laudato Jesus Christus in Sequila. This is Timothy Flanders at the Meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Happy Ascension Tide, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Andrew Bartel. Andrew, how you doing, brother? I'm doing just grand, Timothy. <laughs> Thanks grand for having me on. Well, if you don't know Andrew, he is a lay Dominican of the province of the Most Holy Name of Jesus. He lives with his wife and three children in Montana, where he works as a glazier. He is also pursuing a degree in English and philosophy. So, what what's the uh, long term plan? You don't you don't want to quit the glazier and you want to uh, pursue studies with uh, English? What's are you going to teach? Write? What are your thoughts? Um, not, not exactly sure at the moment, uh, because I've still got a little bit of school ahead of me because I work full time. I've been, uh, been working as a, a glazier in commercial and residential projects. So things like windows, um, shower enclosures, railings, mirrors, things like that. Been doing that for about nine years now. Um, so in addition to doing that full time, I've been doing, you know, pursuing a, uh, my schooling online. So I've still got about two or three years uh, before I complete that degree. So still in the discernment process as far as where that's going to take me. Okay, fantastic. Well, uh, so today's topic is the SSPX dispute, the fraternal SSPX dispute. Um, this is an ongoing conversation. Uh, Andrew wrote a, an open letter to a, a Dominican priest, I believe, last year, critiquing the SSPX. And since that time, he's been a vocal critic of the SSPX. This conversation is going to be just a fraternal discussion. Uh, we're not going to really have a formal debate here. Um, but this is part of the apostolate that I'm a part of, the meaning of Catholic. And what we desire to do is to promote fraternal dialogue among Catholics of all sorts of different stripes and party lines and ideologies and schools of thought. and to that end, uh, one of the most vociferous disputes in this past century and beyond is, of course, the SSPX. So we're going to talk to Andrew. And this is part of this is I was telling Andrew privately. Um, part of this is just me trying to make sure that I understand your views, Andrew. And so we'll just have Andrew be sharing and I'll be asking questions. And we'll also take some questions later on in the show. Um, before we get into all that, uh, wanted to recommend everyone to join the Meaning of Catholic Guild. This is this whole lay apostle is supported by Guild members. Guild members support us financially. They also support us by invoking our three lay patrons, Mary and Joseph and St. Anthony of the Desert, our Fellowship of St. Anthony Penance Group. We offer up penances for clergy and seminarians. So um, you also have access to the Guild streams. The most uh, relevant thereof is this stream. St. John Paul II and St. Marcel, the moderate, question mark. This stream, this analysis is currently in nine parts. There's nine hours worth of content here under this. And it just covers the years up to 1978 when these two men actually meet. But the purpose of this is to cut past a lot of what seems to me to be a, a superficial caricature that sort of both sides paint of the other in this these two men. So 
Uh, you can access that at meaningofcatholic.com slash register. So, Andrew, let's talk about the SSPX. So tell me first about your background. Um, uh, are you a cradle Catholic? What uh, what led you into um, thinking about the SSPX and disputing publicly with um, the SSPX's position? Yes, certainly. So uh, I was born into a, a very fervent, um, charismatic, Pentecostal, uh, Protestant home. Uh, and so that's really kind of my family background. I actually have two great uncles who are very prominent uh, Assemblies of God ministers. And uh, so that's that's what my father was. And then my mom, who's kind of who's from the South, uh, she kind of had a little bit of a Baptist background. Um, but then when she and my my dad uh, got married, they both uh, attended Assemblies of God for a while. And then they uh, they went to uh, Evangel uh, University, uh, which is uh, I think it's an evangelical uh, Bible school, Bible college. And um, it was through just kind of studying uh, Christian history, studying the Bible. They started to have certain questions uh, about the history of you know the church and things that were practiced in the you know the early church and why weren't they practiced in you know the the assemblies of god denomination and other denominations things like that so that began them along a step-by-step -step process uh until uh, when when my dad who is in the marine corps was stationed in okinawa japan we were living on base and there was a catholic family who was um close friends with us and the uh the mom was catholic and we would go, she and my mom would go on long walks uh, and take us kids to the parks there and on base there in, in Okinawa. And uh, and they would have talks about, you know, Catholic versus Protestant and things like that. And this uh, this lady gave a copy of Rome Sweet Home uh, to my mother and uh, Scott Hans, Rome Sweet Home. And he she read that. And uh, one night she just kind of turned over to uh, my dad in bed and and was like, uh, honey, I think we're Catholic. And, uh, and he reacted very strongly to that. Um, I won't repeat what he said to her at the time, but uh, let's just say um, he, he, uh, he was very reluctant, but he read the book and he ended up being convinced just as she was. Um, just actually, it was just a few weeks later. And uh, so it was at that time they started making steps toward coming to the church. So that's where I was baptized. Um, a, a Catholic. I was about seven years old at the time at Kadena Air, Air Base there. And uh, so then around that time, dad dad also wanted to, to get, our family was growing and my uh, we were about three kids at the time with uh, number four on the way. And my dad wanted to, you know, military life isn't the easiest on families. So he decided to, to get, get out, get an honorable discharge and, uh, and then we ended up moving back to the States. So it was during this time that, of course, my parents were continuing to get move onto the Catholic scene and kind of see what's going on, you know, in the church. And what they discovered was um, there were a lot of things that they that were a little off, a little bit crazy. Um, just certain liturgical worship experiences that they had at the masses, uh, the catechesis. Um, in certain RCIA programs, the things they were being taught, they're like, this, this, this just isn't quite right. And it's not, doesn't, doesn't line up with what we're hearing and reading, you know, in our own study of the faith. 
and uh, that that eventually led them to um, to discovering certain traditional Catholic uh, communities. And uh, at the time, I think they were going to an adult uh, community. And so once they once they kind of transitioned and started, you know, discovering the the um, uh, the, the Tridentine Latin Mass and uh, all these things and associating these people, of course, they came into contact with uh, the the SSPX. Um, and of course, at the time, it was portrayed as, you know, oh, you know, Marcel Lefebvre is, you know, this terrible, bad schismatic, you know, you stay away from him, kind of typical narrative. And, uh, and so they didn't, they didn't really look into it at first. But, but eventually, um, certain things happened that prompted them to look in that direction. One of them being, they were, um, they were, my mother was engaged in a conversation with a, a, a lady and, and uh, she asked, well, what would you do if they ever took the Latin mass away from you? And this lady said, oh, they, they won't do that. They know we'd just go right back to the SSPX. And uh, my, my mom was just kind of struck by that. She's like, well, wait a second. Why would you go to the SSPX um, if you're not supposed to, you know, uh, be in league with schismatics or, or whatever? And uh, my, my parents, of course, they're very like frontline oriented. They want to be on the, the cusp of the battle and where things are. And so they started doing some investigation into the Society of St. Pius X. And um, they, uh, they also started reading uh, Bishop Williamson's uh, letters, newsletter he sent out, really started getting into his writings a lot. And uh, they just fell in love with the movement. They fell in love with a lot of the goodness and beauty, uh, the rediscovery of kind of old ways of life, you know, kind of like back to the land movement type stuff, um, uh, a more, you know, women dressing in a way that's, you know, modest and traditional and, and uh, a more traditional view of society and just all those things. They just found that really attra attractive. Um, and, and so that drew them in. They became convinced uh, that the SSPX were in, in, indeed the, the front lines. And so that's when they transit. And this, this all took place probably about within, within about a year year and a half of us being Catholic, that they decided to make this decision um, to uh, to join, you might say, join the ranks of the SPX and become exclusive, you know, attendees of that. So that's that's pretty much as, about as far back as I can remember. I have some vague memories of, of uh, you know, being, you know, Protestant churches and and things like that before, but but otherwise, almost all my memories were being raised in the, the Society of St. Pius X. So, and it was, it was a great upbringing. I had uh, really great friends. Um, I had really good priests uh, who uh, helped us, who taught us, you know, taught us the faith and, um, you know, and I'll always be really grateful for that. Um, you know, I, I don't, um, don't have any complaints as far as um, at least the men that I, you know, the men that I came into contact with. And, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why when um, the split in 2012 happened, um, in the internal division, uh, that's why it was so heartbreaking is, uh, because it was, it was such a, um, a great growing up for me, a great experience. And can you, can you, Andrew, can you just explain that briefly as well? If, if yes, you're not familiar with that, I, will. Right? I certainly will. Yeah. So, so what happened was, um, I think it started around, it was around 2009, that doctrinal discussions, some 2009, 2010 doctrinal discussions started taking place between the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and the leadership of the Society of St. Pius X. And um, that lasted for a few years. And uh, what it eventually, unfortunately, it didn't end up um, 
they were trying to move toward a similar agreement uh, like what Cardinal Ratzinger and Archbishop Lefebvre were trying to uh, construct around the time of 1988. Um, and and there was possibilities of like a personal prelature and things like that. Um, but unfortunately, uh, they just weren't able to reconcile certain doctrinal dif uh, differences about the Second Vatican Council uh, and about the reforms that followed. Um, but what happened was, was during this time, the leadership of the Society of St. Pius X, such as Bishop Flay, Father Schmidberger, and others, they were starting to kind of move a little closer to Rome. And they were trying to kind of prepare uh, the other priests and a lot of us faithful for the possibility of an agreement between them and Rome. So they started softening certain stances uh, during this time that the SSPX had taken up to that point on things such as the Novus Ordo Mise, uh, such as certain teachings of the Second Vatican Council. You can, you can find an interview uh, on YouTube where Bishop Fillet actually says that um, what, what um, Archbishop Lefebvre and they had thought was a very extreme religious liberty uh, matter of fact, one that Archbishop Lefebvre wrote a whole book about and they have uncrowned him was actually not as bad as they thought it was. It was more of a very, very limited liberty. And that that interview that he did, as long as other um, private emails and private letters, especially from the three three other bishops to Bishop Fillet, who was Superior General of the time, uh, warning him, telling him that he was compromising Archbishop Lefebvre's mission and trying to make a deal with Rome before there was a rejection of the Second Vatican Council and the errors therein, or a rejection of the Novus Ordo Mise, uh, Novus Ordo Mass, the new rite of mass. Um, and so these three bishops, Bishop Tissier de Malaray, uh, Bishop Richard Williamson, and Bishop Galaretta, they uh, wrote a letter that was leaked out um, as telling Bishop Fillet that he was wrong. That he that he shouldn't be doing. He was he was he was actually compromising uh, the mission of Archbishop Lefebvre, and he was compromising the faith. And they received a very hot retort from Bishop Fillet, uh, telling them that they were um, basically had a schismatic mentality, that they were on the verge of you know schism, and that what they were doing was completely at odds with the spirit of the priesthood. And uh, and so it was a very very. Um, you know, people, people, a lot of people, especially within the SPX, they like to brush it off and say it was just a few renegade, you know, priests and everything. But it was actually a lot bigger um, than than many people maybe would like to admit, uh, because there were actually whole religious communities that were associated with the SSPX that parted ways. One of them being uh, the, um, I spent a year as a um, as a postulant with the Dominicans of uh, Avrier, France, which was the Dominican house set up by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. Um, they completely parted ways with the SSPX. And I think there were a couple Benedictine communities, um, a, a Franciscan community in Morgon and, uh, and others that broke. Um, and that's along with many uh, or uh, quite, uh, several, at least I think it was around a dozen, two dozen, you know, don't quote me on that, but based off of the priests that I was hearing about the time who were leaving, um, such as Father, you know, Father Chazal, Father Hugo, um, et cetera, et cetera, these men left to form this resistance. They said too much has been compromised. And it happened right at the time that Bishop Richard Williamson was expelled uh, by the superior uh, Bishop Fillet at the time uh, for insubordination because he, he refused to stop crit publicly criticizing uh, the leadership of the SSPX. And, uh, and so he was expelled. And so that was really a breaking point. And then 
a lot of priests started coalescing around him and forming this movement called the resistance, uh, which was a significant number of priests. It's the largest split in the history of the society after uh, the split of the nine priests in 1983, who would become Saint of the Contest. So, so it was, was a big deal. Was this the time that you started to question your upbringing, Andrew? Or did that happen after? Yeah, I, I was forced to. Yeah, I, I was uh, because um, many people, many people think that there's only one SSPX, right? And that might be true on paper as far as the legal reality. There's only one, you know, incorporated who has the buildings, who has that, um, you know, the business aspect or the institution of the SSPX. But there are actually four. There are actually four SSPXs. There are four um, groups of men. Uh, pursuing the priesthood and um, and trying to build up and pro and promote the uh, the 1962 rite of missile or for one of them um, 1958, uh, who all accept Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre as their father, and these are um, the the nine priests uh, who split away in 1983, who would go on to start the Society of Saint Pius V. Um, and, um, and they, they also split into a few different groups, but that's kind of one of the bigger ones that resulted from, from the, the that first split. And, uh, then the, the second one was in 1988 with the fraternity of St. Peter, um, for the fraternity of St. Peter accepted the terms that Archbishop Lefebvre had himself accepted and signed with, with Cardinal, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, but then reneged on the next morning. Uh, they, these were the priests that went along with that, that, um, um, agreement. So if, if, if Archbishop Lefebvre had continued, uh, and made true on that agreement, those priests that we call the fraternity of St. Peter would be called the priests of the SSPX. They would be still be called the society of St. Pius X. And, uh, these men still hold, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre to be a kind of spiritual father to them. And it was very painful. You can hear, um, Father, uh, certain there was a Father Joseph Bizig, who was the superior of the fraternity of St. Peter. He expressed how much pain it felt he felt about being like a spiritual orphan, uh, being left like that. Um, and then the uh, the third SSPX uh, would be the uh, resistance, um, the one bishop that Archbishop Lefebvre consecrated, and the dozens of priests and religious and and, and thousands of faithful who have joined. Uh, this movement, believing that the uh, the SSPX has not been faithful to Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. And then the fourth SSPX, of course, is the one we all know. It's the biggest one. Um, it's the official SSPX. And so this is what I came to terms with, was that uh, because my mom was leaning more toward the state of the contest, you know, like the Father Chikadas, the, uh, the the Bishop Dolans, that first split, she was more leaning toward that, fir that fir you know, that second SSPX. And then uh, my, my dad now, once this resistance happened, he was leaning more toward this fourth, you know, SSPX. And so I'm sitting kind of here in the middle torn um, between, you know, the, you know, the family I love, you know, my father and my mother, who I both deeply respected. And then all of the priests, the other priests I admire, I had priests on both sides uh, of this issue that I loved, respected and had studied, you know, their work, listened to their sermons, received spiritual direction from them, et cetera, et cetera. So I was like, how do I, how do I know which one is being faithful to the mission of Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre? How do I determine that? Um, is there a way for me to determine which one is the true remnant of the church? Which one is being faithful to, to tradition? 
because they all claim to be faithful to tradition. They all claim to have valid sacraments. They all claim to be doing what they need to do, justified by the state of necessity. Um, How do I determine that? And what I realized was that it all came down to me. It all came down to who I thought was correct. There wasn't an outside, exterior, external way for me to be able to determine which one of these SSPXs were the remnant of the true church or were the the ones who were preserving tradition in its fullness. So what I realized was that I have to go back to the drawing board. Um, I have to realize what, you know, I have to, I have to retrace my steps and find, and find out how can I find out who the, where the true church is basically. And, uh, and it was through my study of state of occultism with uh, Arch, um, it was Jerry Maditix actually, who introduced me to the work of St. Francis de Sales. Um, he wrote a collection of, ap- of apologetic uh, treatises that are collected in a book called The Catholic Co- Controversy. And the first one of that um, is, has to do with mission. And that in order for um, ministers of, of Christ's church to be able to say, we represent the church and we can authentically preach, teach, govern, and sanctify, you have to have this mission. And that this is a priori. This precedes every other aspect of the Catholic faith, right? Because we know that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. So you have to know that this church has received this mission uh, and and is authentically uh, communicating that to uh, the faithful. And uh, and and what it is is this is this connected to the mark or the property of the church known as the, as apostolicity, right? When we confess in the creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Mission is um, what is necessary in order to have that that apostolic mark. You have to have been sent by the by the lawful authority. And uh, and when I looked and I examined each of these SSPXs, um, whether it was the first one, you know, the state of contest groups, or um, or or when I I looked at the the resistance group or the regular SSPX, um, I realized. That, that none of them had been sent because as, as we know, the, 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 the mission is, is possessed by the Pope and all of the, the bishops who are in union with him, the apostolic college, this it's only within uh, the apostolic college connected to the Holy father that possess um, this power of sending. And uh, when you look at the history uh, of, of each of these groups, none of them can, claim that they have received this mission. And there's there's two types of mission. There's either um, mediate mission um, or ordinary mission, as it's often called, or uh, immediate mission or extraordinary mission. And you have to have both of them. Uh, one is the ordinary sending uh, by, like I said, by the Pope and the bishops. And, and any priest that is is ministering to the people of God has to have been sent by the bishop who has been sent by the Pope. And, uh, and then the same thing goes for extraordinary mission. The extraordinary mission is, is what we associate in the Old Testament with like uh, Moses uh, and Christ or in the New Testament and the apostles. And they worked miracles to prove that they'd been sent by God and they had this extraordinary mission. Um, and then they sent successors. Uh, for in, so, for example, in the case of Moses, it was Joshua. He was sent Joshua. Uh, that was immediate sending or an ordinary sending. And in the case of the Christ and the apostles um, or Paul, you know, he sent Paul sent Titus, Paul sent Timothy, um, all of the 
the bishop, they, the other bishops made appointed their successors to the various churches. And, um, and, and, and so I realized you. that I had to be connected to that. that let me, had let to me ask a question, Andrew, if, if I may. Um, Go for it. Do you, you, you mentioned that it's a priori, it's, it's fundamental. Now, yes. would you say that it is uh, basically intrinsically evil? Uh, it's always wrong to not have a mission. There has to be a mission or else there's, it's always and everywhere wrong to disobey that order. Yes. From, from what I've, what, from what I've seen in the, um, in the scriptures and uh, in the doctors and fathers of the church, this is something that uh, is an essential uh, property of the church because it's connected um, actually to, to two marks, especially um, that of unity um, and then that of uh, apostolicity. Those two are very closely connected because in unity, you have a, a unity of faith and then you also have a unity of communion. And that unity of communion is a unity of uh, is a communion of governance and um, a governance and worship. And, and so those who are exercising that governance, right, they have to have that mission. So it's, it's close So the, these marks, the marks of the church, one holy Catholic and apostolic, each one of them is interconnected to the other, the others. And so, um, in order to have the true mark of oneness, you also have to have the true mark of apostolicity. And, and so, and these, as, as the church is taught, um, you can, and you can find it rooted in the scriptures um, and in the, um, the teachings of the fathers and of the councils, that these four marks are essential. They can never be compromised. If you ever find uh, priests, bishops, or laity who are operating outside of these marks of the church, they cannot call themselves Catholic. Um, Pius, the, Pius IX pointed that out very clearly in Corda Supra, uh, that anyone who is separated by the, from the bonds of faith, worship, and governance um, of the church and those who have been given the mission to offer to to exercise those offices within the church has to cease to be called Catholic, and and so it is an essential part of of our faith and um, and especially in the scriptures. Um, one of my favorite gospels is the Gospel of John, and every single chapter. Um, Christ, uh, it, it begins right, right at the beginning with um, uh, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is emphasizing, I've been sent. I've been sent to prepare, to prepare a way in the wilderness for the one who's coming as greater than I. So this is the sending of John the Baptist. And then every chapter, um, you find Christ saying, as the Father has sent me, um, he who has sent me, he who has sent me, this phrase over and over and over again, every single chapter. And that culminates in the final chapter, chapter 21 of the book of John, with the, uh, the institution of the papacy, which is the foundational principle of this mission, of this communion. And so uh, um, Christ asks Peter for that threefold confession of faith. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. That, that is recognized by the church as when the papacy was founded. Um, by Christ. Many people are confused and they believe that it was founded back in Matthew 16 when he says, thou art Peter, you know, um, I'm changing your name to Peter and you are the rock on which the church is built and I'm giving you the keys. That's not when the papacy was founded. Uh, it was actually founded um, after the resurrection 
Uh, and, and that's the culmination. It's this beautiful culmination of this gospel of mission. So it is, this concept is deeply rooted in the gospel and you can't, um, you can't separate that from uh, even just the ba most basic practice of the faith. We even though, as the lay people have a duty to, uh, if we are to have an authentic sense of the faith, an authentic census fidei, we have to know that we have to ask um, those who are our ministers, who sent you? That's, that's uh, Francis de Sales actually admonishes the, uh, the ex-Catholics who had left um, the church at the time. He admonishes them and says, what, what right had you um, to listen to them, to listen to their doctrines? Why didn't you ask who had sent them? So even Francis de Sales expect the, la the laity to, to, um, to have this basic sense of the faith to be able to ask who, who the shepherd is um, and to, to be able to discern whether or not it's a, he's a thief and a robber um, and that he's entered the sheepfold by another way. So I don't no. see how there's a way of getting around it. No. Um, does that mean, doesn't that mean that there is a discernment that the individual has to have there? to discern that this person is sent? Aren't you judging that yourself then? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It is, it is both subjective and objective, but it can't be only subjective. So your decision to conform yourself to the true church of Christ is conformed by the claims that that, that, that church makes. Right. So if I exercise my discernment and I join the Orthodox church or the Protestant church, right. Um, they're going to tell me that they're the true church of Christ. Right. Um, but are they are are the, do they actually have the claims? So it is a combination. Yeah. I mean, you can't get away from the fact that you have to exercise this discernment. But then that personal discernment has to be ratified by the church itself by, and by its own claims. So lo looking at the, the mission argument, um, to me, I'm not very convinced by it. And the reason is because the statements regarding mission are at a time when the Protestants are setting aside essential parts of the faith and inventing new liturgies, and they're already departing from the faith. Part of that is the mission. Um, but in our time, we have the opposite thing happening. We have bishops who are making it appear that the church is renouncing itself, in the words of Pope Emeritus Benedict, to Zewald in Last Testament. And he's saying that that's why the SSPX exists, because the church or bishops, even the Pope himself, Pope Paul VI, is suppressing the thing that is the most sacred that a community can have. It's it's calling its own being into question, as Ratzinger said in another place. So it's the opposite of what's going on. So what was established and being passed down in terms of the tradition and the liturgy, that the mission was there, it was being passed down. Suddenly there's a change where there's a changing of tradition. And so it doesn't appear to me that this is the same situation that we had in the Protestant re revolt. What, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Uh, so um, the first thing I would say was um, just because a, a, um, a certain situation in history doesn't happen to be identical, doesn't mean that we shouldn't look back at history or look back at the tradition um, in order to be able to exercise discernment for the present, right? Because, of course, prudent discernment is one that not only looks to the past, but also to the future, right? It's, it's one that encompasses um, the whole of, of human experience. So we have to rely on where we've been to know where we're going and to know how to make those decisions. 
And uh, but but as far as the discussion of mission, it definitely isn't um, it isn't one that was exclusive to the time of the Protestant Reformation. You can find these same arguments being made uh, by St. Augustine, by St. Jerome, uh, by St. Irenaeus, by St. Ignatius of Antioch um, in their disputations um, with the, um, the various heresies and schismatics of the time. They use these same principles because, like I said, it goes back even further. It's actually based in the Gospels especially the gospel of John. Um, so it's, it's something that, that, is, that transcends um, whatever time period of history you happen to be going through. Right, um, that's true. As, yeah, yeah as, as far as, as, far as um, the questioning of, of the Pope um, and, and the majority of bishops in, in union with him uh, betraying the true faith or betraying the worship of God, um, that would that would be something that runs against one of the essential attributes of the church. So we discussed the four properties of the church, right? Um, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Those four characteristics that have to be present. They're part of the divine nature or the the, the divine constitution uh, and nature of the church. Uh, but then there are also uh, essential attributes um, that are correlative to those four, uh, and you can find this. Uh, in any catechism, it's in the Baltimore Catechism, it's in uh, Ludwig Ott's Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. Um, I mean, you can find these attributes um, anywhere, um, but they're, they are uh, infallibility, um, authority, and indefectibility. And these three attributes, along with the, the four properties, are a part of the church's constitution that will remain the same. Uh, based off of the promises of our Lord. The, the church cannot change in any of these essential ways. Otherwise, Christ would have failed in his promises uh, because the church would actually become something that she wasn't. And, uh, and so indefectibility in terms of the, the essential uh, apostolic nature of the church, the, the Pope and the bishops in union with him, um, compromising the faith at a universal level and an official capacity and then, and then actually mandating uh, worship that's harmful to the faith, harmful to souls, or doctrines that are pernicious and can cause you to lose your faith, that runs completely against these essential attributes. So you would have to, in order to make this claim, you would have to say that the church has changed in her essential constitution, that she's exercised even through to the tumultuous times of the various epochs of church history. Um, so... I, I mean, I, I agree with you in principle, but it just seems that there are situations where we have a, a real problem on our hands. Like, I, I mean, I, I'm a parishioner in America in 1963 or 67. I, I'm sitting there in parish and the parish priest comes to town and he says, I've been sent by the bishop and he takes a hammer and destroys the statue of Mary because he's saying out with the old in with the new. And I say, who sent you? And he says, the bishop. And I write the bishop. The bishop says, yes, he's my priest. So this is a real situation that happened all over the world. Um, how How is a, a Catholic to respond to this? Because to me, it seems that uh, the SSPX comes along and says, no, you can't do that. That's wrong. Uh, the letter to confused Catholics, Archbishop of the Feb describes a bunch of really even worse situations than destroying a statue. But mm -hmm. um uh, celebrating invalid sacraments and all sorts of weird stuff that was approved by the bishops in various places, even catechisms that contained heresy, Dutch catechism, Dutch bishops. Um, and when we, it seems to me that this, this becomes quite complicated in this situation. Sure. Um, 
go ahead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up. That's a great, that's a great example. Um, because we've seen this over and over again through 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 church history, right? And and one of the major ones, and it's one that often gets brought up in the Athesis PX controversy, is the Arian crisis, right? Because this is where you had um many bishops, uh, and according to the testimony of Jerome, the majority of bishops who had fallen for this heresy, who were going contrary to the Council of Nicaea. And, uh, and, and this was a, a serious problem that Catholics had to discern, right? And, uh, and, and I would say in, in that instance, that's, again, when you, when you, look, to, um, you look to Rome, uh, when there are disagreements or you have unfaithful bishops, uh, you look to Rome to sort out these issues. And you also look to um, those faithful bishops who have remained faithful to the, the Bishop of Rome and who have remained faithful to the council, right? So, so you have certain mechanisms when you have a Bishop that goes astray, um, you can recognize that and, and see that this is not a way, this is not the way forward, right? And this is actually an argument that I've tried to make. And I wish that trads would apply it consistently because um, when I grew up, it was very common to judge this Bishop or judge this Bishop or that Bishop. And and especially if you happen to be attending their parish and let's say, you know, you're a you know, Novus Ordo, Novus Ordo Catholic, you're a regular Catholic and you encounter this terrible abuse and you're like, I can't do this. This is awful. I need to find something better for my children. And you find the SSPX chapel just down the road. Right. Um, and that's what happened to my parents. Um, that that kind of discernment, I understand, is something we all have to to we all have to exercise, right? But um, we can't we can't um, exchange a a false solution, right, for a for a real problem. So you don't jump out of the frying pan and into the fire. You don't jump out of heresy into schism. Um, and just as you recognize heresy, and just as you can recognize an unfaithful bishop in the church, so you should also be able to recognize unfaithful independent clergy. And, and that's been the point I'm making is that I think we just need to apply. It's yes, it's true that we uh, Catholic lady have to exercise discernment, but it has to be done within the context of the church. It has to take place within the church, right? We don't make the mistake of, of going outside the confines of the church, outside of the divine constitution of the church to frequent the chapel chapels of uh, clergy who are operating without a mission because that's not traditional. That's what's so ironic about this, this whole situation is that the society, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre and the Society of St. Pius X are being unfaithful to a fundamental aspect of tradition in the way that they're operating. They're operating in a way that, that no uh, bishop has operated before uh, as far as um, consecrating bishops, uh, not, not just without a papal mandate, which has been done in history before, but against the express will of the of the Holy Father, or or ordaining uh, priests and starting seminaries and erecting chapels and having a rival um, uh, marriage tribunals and schools and 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 sacramental registries and doing things apart from the bishop. And many people are under the delusion that this isn't this is something that's still not going on. So many SSPX apologists have actually tried to convince people that the SSPX goes to the local bishop and asks his blessing when they erect a chapel. And that's not the case. As a matter of fact, it was just in the news yesterday 
that um, they built they built this beautiful the SSPX recently built this beautiful church in um, in Mexico, and um, the uh, Archbishop of Pueblo, Mexico, issued a document saying that the the that the SSPX is schismatic and that the, the local faithful cannot frequent that church. So it doesn't it isn't striking me that the SSPX is going and asking this bishop for his permission to operate in Mexico. Something's something's not quite right there. Um, let, let me. Um, so you just mentioned that the 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 priests of the SSPX are doing something that's never been done before, and that made me think of what Cardinal Ratzinger writes in Milestones when Paul VI imposed the Novus Ordo and suppressed the old. That had never been done before. He said that's never been happened happened in the history of the liturgy, and it introduced a breach into liturgical development. And when I look at this issue, it seems to me that there is something even prior to the the ordinary mission structure, the juridical structure of the church, uh, passing down the tradition through the Lex Arandi. Um, and, and I find that Ratzinger is publicly resisting Paul VI in the 1970s, and he gets made a bishop and a cardinal over it. And later he frees the Latin mass because this is an essential feature is this continuity. So it seems to me that yes, there, you know, we should have a mission. We should have this ordinary juridical order, but it seems to be secondary to the basic continuity of the tradition. And that's what I read from Ratzinger. That's what makes me, and I mean, let me, let me point out another thing is that the, the, when, when um, Ratzinger, the, the, the break happens in 1988, there is the the faithful in Hawaii who go to the SSPX to get confirmation and they get excommunicated by the local bishop, but then that gets lifted by Ratzinger in Rome. So it, it seems to me that this is, if this is a species of schism, it's, it's this juridical irregularity within the church where one can frequent the chapel because of this situation that has been created with the Latin mass being suppressed. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. Um, as you know, as far as the, the Hawaii six situation, um, unfortunately what's always emphasized was that, well, look it, the, um, it got overturned. The excommunication, um, was by the Bishop of Honolulu was considered to be null and void, uh, by Cardinal Joseph Rexinger, who at the time was the prefect for the congregation of the doctor of the faith. Ergo, the SS, no problems with the SSPX. Faithful can attend there without fear of being schismatic. One of the things they always brush over, though, is that in the official decree of um, that issued by by Cardinal Ratzinger, he um, he makes a point that the actions of these lay faithful, um, based off of the examination of the the congregation, um, were not. It wasn't sufficient, is the word he uses. There was insufficient um, evidence to indicate that they were formally, that they committed the formal crime of schism, right? It doesn't mean that there weren't issues. And as a matter of fact, what he then says subsequently is that the, their actions were, were found to be blameworthy in many respects. That's actually in the official decree. And so when you read the rest of the decree in context with that, it shows that even although it wasn't sufficient, 
to constitute um, formal tyrants, there wasn't enough evidence at the time, doesn't mean that um, what they were doing was correct. Um, and, and so unfortunately, again, that's something SSPX completely brush over and, and, they, and they fail to emphasize that, is that this is a very complex situation. And I think we do need to distinguish between the lay faithful um, and um, of course the leadership and clergy of the SSPX because the lay faithful who attend masses, they have, you know, they have varying degrees of knowledge, uh, culpability, understanding of the issues and what's going on. And they might not necessarily even be buying into um, the end goal or the end and objectives of the movement. So that means they, even though what they're doing might not necessarily be the most prudent, right? Just like somebody who maybe regularly frequented a Protestant service or an Orthodox service, um, you couldn't say that somebody going there immediately became schismatic, a layperson, right? And that's why the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts came out with a clarification. And I invite every, anyone to go and read that. You can find it at catholicculture.org. Um, they came out with, uh, with, with criteria for what formal adherence means um, as, as delineated. When, when John, Pope John Paul II used that term, that those um, priests and laity who formally adhered to the Society of St. Pius X would be guilty of schism and guilty of excommunication. Um, uh, they lay out what that looks like because many people wondered, well, what does formal adherence look like? And, um, and, and that was clarified and you can find that. So for example, if you are a priest of the Society of St. Pius X, that constitutes formal adherence or a brother, uh, or if you're a lay person um, who only goes to an SSPX chapel at the exclusion of any other Catholic rite, say, for example, Fraternity of St. Peter, um, Institute of Christ the King, anyone else who, who, who are worshiping according to the exact same missal, right? You refuse to go to any, any other um, uh, worship um, or, or you also buy into the movement, such as a, the rejection of the magisterium, rejection of the authority of the, the popes, rejection of the new right of masses evil, all of those things that the SSPX has, has made a part of their movement and part of their platform. If you buy into all of that, that's when you would be guilty of formal adherence. But there aren't all, all the lay, all the lay faithful aren't at that point, you know? So that's, that's what I would say as far as the Hawaii case, as far as the, um, what you brought up in terms of the missile and things that were going on, uh, obviously there's disagreement um, about that. Um, there are many, many liturgical experts um, and people who have studied the liturgy um, who do not uh, follow the consensus um, or, or follow the opinions of the a very, actually very small minority um, of people in the Catholic Church who believe that the new rite of mass that followed the Second Vatican Council is such a radical break of tradition as to justify um, radical actions. Um, as a matter of fact, there were many, many good, competent liturgical scholars who were part of that reform. Um, and, 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 and you can see, and, and, and they use the tradition of the church uh, and the various rites of the church in order to uh, accomplish it. And um, me with my background with the Dominican rite, and I'm sure you with your backgrounds with the, um, in the, like, the Eastern rites, um, you can see that those rites, those more ancient rites actually have more influence um, and have shaped the new rite of liturgy 
especially with regards to a greater emphasis on the, the, the wholeness of the Paschal mystery, not just the passion aspect of it, but the, the passion, death, and resurrection, expressing that in all its fullness, um, and a lot of other positive aspects of, of reform that even Archbishop Lefebvre himself supported. Um, so it's you can't just you know like throw it out and say oh this is this is a bad can of words this is such a radical break of tradition that now we have to also break with tradition in order to preserve something that we believe is an essential part of the tradition right because that 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 that's a conundrum uh, you don't you don't do something evil you don't um, you don't break with tradition in order to save tradition that would be completely self defeating. Um, so if authentic reform is going to happen, right, and I fully acknowledge that it has been a tumultuous time um, following the reforms and in the implementation of the liturgical changes, but so has every other time in church history. When you actually study the, the, um, the history of the liturgy, you can see that following either before a council when they called it because liturgical reform needed to happen and after when they tried to implement it, there was chaos. There was a lot of confusion that went around. Just as an example, Council of Trent, right? Some of the things that the Council of Trent had to address were um, the accretion, certain um, additions, superstitious additions that had crept into the mass um, that people were doing, certain practices. Um, one was they would do multiple signs of the cross, believing that the multiple signs of the cross were what confected um, the consecration and not just, you know, not the words of consecration themselves. Some of them would do strange processions, you know, like put the, the host on their head and do this kind of strange procession around the church. Um, there were even the laity too. the laity. Sometimes it could be get really rowdy because the lords, the medieval lords would bring their hunting dogs or falcons into, into mass with them. Um, or another one would be uh, when there would be Eucharistic processions going from one place to another. And, and they would meet in the street and neither Eucharistic procession would want to give way. And these brawls would, would break out um, and, and it would just be absolute chaos. Like there were all these different things. As a matter of fact, there was a, um, there's this awesome liturgical role that um, um, I'm trying to remember what the technical name for it was, um, but his role, and it, it, I think it went all the way up into the 20th century was to carry this big stick um, in front of processions. Um, and that, 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 um, I'm trying to remember what the Latin term for, for his <laughs> carry the big stick. Yeah. 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 And, and eventually it just became this, you know, he never used it, but it became this ceremonial, um, uh, role. Um, and that goes back to this chaos that often would happen in these medieval towns because they would have these guys with the sticks, you know, to try to clear out, you know, the people who would be being rowdy or whatever it happened to be. Right. So, um, so yeah, it, like, Implementation, uh, the because worship within the church is both divine and human, there's a little bit of a messy element to that. And uh, and I can tell you, even in my experience in the SSPX, um, I had a lot of really bad liturgical experiences. Um, as a matter of fact, I remember one that's in this chapel we attended, there were, um, there were parishioners who actually left. They actually left the chapel and they stayed home. They wouldn't come to mass because they were so scandalized by this one SSPX priest and the way that he said the mass. Um, it, it was it was it was hasty. It was disrespectful. Um, it was you know the, it was abusive. You know sometimes he would do things like throw um, the altar boys. He'd throw the the cloth back right in their face. You know he would he was a big man so he'd like genuflect and the whole altar would like you know. Just, 
just all these crazy distracting, you know, practices and it scandalized a lot of people. Right. And that was in the SPX. So this is something that, this is something that we all, you know, we have all throughout the church and, um, and it's something that we all have to work toward, but we do it within the church. We do it within, um, the constitution as laid out, as laid out by Christ and handed down to us through tradition. And we solve these problems in the church, not, not, um, not going outside of the tradition. Yes. Thank you, Bartel. Uh, I want to take a few questions before we we close out. Um, there was one question from me, from JT, who says, how would you answer to the public statements of the last three popes affirming the reality of schism? Um, it, it seems to me that there is some ambiguity between what the popes are saying and what the Ecclesia Dei is saying and various responsa from various questions and dubia that are sent um, and I, I found this interesting quote here from Zavald, Volume Two, where he he talks about how um, the uh, talking to Ratzinger. This is on page one eighty seven, and he says not after nineteen eighty eight, he says nevertheless, henceforth the fraternity was not considered to be schismatic, but merely irregular, and it's sort of strange because Ecclesia Dei Afflicta says this is a schismatic act. Um, Cardinal Ratzinger says in Chile, uh, the schism of Mar Monsignor Lefebvre. And yet there's, there seems to be this allowance to commune with the, the SSPX. Uh, so it seems to me that there is a species of schism that is not the technical canonical crime where someone is outside the church. There is an irregularity with the juridical structure of the church. Um, and until 2009, there was an irregularity with communion. Um, but it seems to me if, if a, if a priest is in communion with the Pope in communion with the local Bishop shares the same faith, those things are primary. And what is secondary is this mission structure and this juridical structure. Um, that that's how I would reconcile it because it's sort of this weird situation. That's not like, it's not like Eastern Orthodoxy where they are totally schismatic. They're rejecting the Pope, uh, in and of itself per se, um, but it seems to be this sort of ambiguous, irregular, strange new situation where there is a schism, but there's not a schism. It's like a schism within the church, if you will. Um, but that that's that is my assessment. Uh, do you have any comments, Bartel? Yeah, I mean, do you I mean, um, I, I think that one of the reasons why the, the situation is confusing and ambiguous is because the um, there have been bishops and priests in the church uh, who have wanted to align themselves with the SSPX who have made it confusing. Uh, I think the popes have actually been fairly clear as to the status of the Society of St. Pius X. And as a matter of fact, the most recent official statement by Pope Francis um, was in Misericordia et Misera. And in it, he states that uh, the SSPX, the priests of the SSPX are not in full communion. Um, he states it explicitly. That's one of the reasons why I think it's so ridiculous when people think that because he gave them these exceptional faculties of um, confessions and marriages, uh, extending that out of the, the graciousness flowing from the year of mercy, um, that somehow that that has reconciled them to the church. That's a de facto resignation or de facto uh, acknowledgement that they are no longer in schism, that they are actually Catholic clergy. And that's just absurd because he actually explicitly states in the same document, in the same paragraph, that they are not in communion with the church. 
And that's been the, that's the last official papal statement um, on the subject. Um, and of course, that's in conjunction with the consistent papal statements, both of um, Pope Benedict XVI, who stated that um, they have no canonical status. Uh, it's not just regular. They have no, the SSPX has no canonical status in the church. Um, they're autocephalous priests. And uh, the SSPX doesn't have, is not a juridic person. And then as well as uh, John Paul II's, of course, you know, his declaration, it's never been rescinded. Um, the other thing that is interesting to me is that the, uh, the SSPX has no permission to ordain priests and their masses are still illicit. Um, Kennedy Hall tried to argue in his book, SSPX Defense, that um, the SSPX has the right to ordain priests and the right to incarnate. But the only proof he gave in his book was that Bishop Fillet said so. It's the only proof. And uh, I find it very odd that the, um, that the Pope and the bishops would go to such great lengths in granting faculties to, um, to ordain, or not to ordain, but to, um, to con for confession and for marriages, but then remain completely silent as far as the right to ordain priest and the right to incarnate. There is no official documentation on that. Um, and I think I find that to be an issue. Right. Uh, I, I mean, it's there's no question that there's ambiguity. Um, there seems to be these conflicting statements, um, but I I'm not concerned myself with attending the, the SSBX because of the statements that I've read um, regarding communion at the SSBX. Um, but uh, here is uh, let's see what else I got. Here's a Logos Project is in the chat, Dom Namaso. He says, can a person enter the College of Bishops against the express will of its head, not just without his knowledge? I would, it would seem that validly one can be consecrated and one can become a bishop with ap apostolic concession. So I would say, yes, it can happen. Bartel, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, based, based on what the, the, the consistent teachings of the, the popes on this subject, um, it's, it's not possible um, for a person to enter the College of Bishops. A bishop can be validly ordained, um, but the, the bishop, uh, he, he cannot enter the College of Bishops without um, the confirmation of the pope. So he remains basically an autocephalous, a bishop with, with no, um, he's like an empty cup. So like a cup you have um, the potential of the office. You have the, you have the powers of, of orders, uh, but you do not have the right to exercise them um, within the apostolic college. So, and you can go look at uh, Pius IX's Quarter Supra, um, look at Pius XII's Mystici Corporis Christi, Leila uh, XIII's Sadis Cognitum. Um, Pius, uh, Pius IX uh, wrote extensively on this, especially with regards to the uh, Armenian church. Pius XII in uh, Ad Apostolorum Principis uh, on the communist church. Um, the popes have said again and again and again that, um, that the, the, you can't enter the College of Bishops and you're uh, a, rogue, a rogue bishop if you, don't, um, if you have, have been ordained a bishop against the express will of the Holy Father. Would you say that um, not being in full communion, would you would you say that the SSPX is in imperfect communion? Would you say that they're more in communion than the Eastern Orthodox, for example? 
Mm. Uh, I would say that um, consistent with the the teaching of the um, the Second Vatican Council on the subject, I believe that the the Society of Saint Pius X uh, shares elements of communion with us. So uh, a common baptism, uh, a common reverence for tradition. Um, things like that. So just as I share a reverence for the scriptures of the Protestant um, or confirmation with the Orthodox, you know, and same beliefs about the, the true nature of Jesus Christ and confessing him as my savior, uh, those are things that, and, and, and a shared baptism, those are things that do unite us. Um, but as far as um, there is not fullness of, there's not fullness of communion. So uh, on the invisible nature of the church, there are certain things that we share that are means of grace. But as far as belonging to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church and having the right to call yourself Catholic, uh, that's something that the society does not possess because they do not possess uh, the marks of unity and therefore the mark of Catholicity or the mark of uh, the apostolic mission uh, and nature of the church. So when Pope Benedict lifted the excommunications, what was their state of communion in your mind after 2009? It was the same. Um, there is there's there's a precedent for um, when an excommunication, a declared excommunication, is lifted. Um, if you uh, continue, um, if if the reason for your excommunication, the action that you committed that incurred that, if you can continue to do the same thing and you're not reconciled, uh, you then incur the same excommunication. And you can you can ask canon lawyers on this; they'll back me up on this. That. That if if your the contumacy of your action remains, um, you can incur that excommunication the next day. Um, so just because the the declared censure was lifted, and uh, Pope Benedict was very clear that it was a gesture of mercy to bring this SSPX back into fullness of communion, um, showed that 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 now once that censure was lifted, it was now the duty. It was the incumbent duty of the bishops and priests and whatever adherents to then come and reconcile with the church again. So, and there's a precedent for this in 1965, uh, Pope Paul VI lifted the declared excommunication on, on the Orthodox, um, but that didn't end the schism. So there's a difference. We have to distinguish between the declared censure and the, and the crime and the, the crime slash sin. So are you saying that the SSPX bishops were again, automatically excommunicated because they didn't change what they were doing? Uh, based on based on what I've read, um, there's a canon lawyer. I was I was really disappointed um, that Kennedy Hall didn't bring uh, this study up in his book. Um, I was actually disappointed that Kennedy Hall didn't bring up a lot of things in his book. He only he only referenced one um, one study that was not favorable to the SSPX. He didn't he didn't reference any other work, and I just I find that to be disappointing and not very scholarly. But there is this one. Um, that you can find online. It's called uh, arriving, arriving at the juridic status of the priestly fraternity of Saint Pius X, by Father uh, Jean uh, John G. Um, Lesartibudo, and um, uh, it's a he goes through the whole history of the SSPX. He he um, it's one of the most in depth um, canon law expositions on the situation of the Society of Saint Pius X I've read. And his conclusion is that, yes, they are still schismatic because the contumacy of their actions um, has remained. So the contumacy of schismatic actions, beliefs, attitudes, 
and being separated from the governance and worship of the common life of the church. That's something that has continued through. And he makes a very, very strong case, uh, according to canon law, that, um, that they are still schismatic. Okay. Well, if you want to know more, you can go read the canonical study just reference. We have already mentioned Kennedy's Hall's book twice, which is defending the SSPX. Here's one final question that's been sent out a few times here, Andrew, uh, for you from, and I think you kind of mentioned this already, but he, Brian sure. says, um, what is Andrew's response to the various concessions granted to the SSBX, such as permissions for ordinations, making Bishop Flay a canonical judge and laicization of priests? Thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said before, uh, we have no proof that, um, that, that he has been given permission to ordain priests. Um, and for something as, as important as the ordination and incarnation of priests, you would think the, the Rome, that Rome would be at least as careful as it was with confessions and marriages. So I, for me, I, I'm like, show me the official documentation. You know, I, I'm not just going to trust the, the, the word or hearsay of someone, especially somebody for whom that being true um, is favorable to their cause. Um, as far as being appointed to a canonical, you know, court, that was a way that they worked with Rome um, based to, to discipline a priest. Um, so it was one way that they worked with Rome. But you can see that um, the other, other groups also work with Rome in certain, in certain things. Um, but if you, don't, if you aren't fully um, subject to Rome all the time and working with them within the ordinary structure of the church, that's the issue. Um, just pointing to certain uh, examples of the SSPX working with the church does not 20, 10 to 20% of the time does not disprove the 80% of the time where they're actually um, working against the church, such as recently um, in this, this uh, church that they erected in, uh, in Mexico. Um, so, so you, ha you have to look at the whole, you know, the whole picture and, um, you know, one thing I brought up in my debate with Jeff Kassman is that, you know, he uh, he would he acknowledged and he was quick to say that the uh, the German church is schismatic, that we can we can see right based off of what they're saying, what they're doing, their approach to Rome, that they're that they're schismatic. But they are still in this state because it's an ongoing developing situation where they still have faculties and they're still operating like Catholics. But, but any, anyone with a sense of the faith knows that, that they're on a rough trajectory to schism. And I'm saying we need to apply the same common sense principles. We need to inform ourselves in the faith um, as Catholics. And we, need to, um, we, don't need to, we don't want to give any clergy member carte blanche. We need to apply the same principles to the SSPX as we do to the German church. If you're being unfaithful to tradition, just because you say the traditional Latin mass, um, it doesn't, that doesn't make it right. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Any final uh, comments you'd like to give Andrew on the uh, topic? No, no, I just I really appreciate um, you giving me the opportunity to come on and discuss this with you. Uh, I think it's really, really important that we not see uh, each other as enemies, um, as lay people. Right. Um, we these are things that we need to work through uh, together um, and acknowledge that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And, uh, and, and that, that God is patient with us, that he realizes that we have to take this one step at a time. If we don't know certain things, or we weren't aware of certain things before. Um, that's okay. That's part of being human, but we need to be making the prop, taking the proper sense to inform ourselves and to form an authentic sense 
uh, sensus fidei, sense of the faith. Um, and we need to do that together and not uh, not demonize each other or fall into false, you know, unhelpful or uncharitable polemics. Um, you know, we, let's have a good let's have a good um, discussion, you know, good back and forth like Timothy and I have had today. Let's not hold back on that. But but let's all remember that um, we want the same thing. Right. We want to be united with Christ, all of us. Amen. Uh, absolutely. I, I heartily agree, Andrew. And thank you for coming. I appreciate we could have this conversation. I, I, I think of it as uh, the reality of the communion that we share with Christ and with each other. When we go to the altar, we are communing with each other as well. And so we do need to face each other and try to hash it out as best we can. So with that, let's offer everything to Our Lady, uh, as always, because she is the seat of wisdom. And in her is our unity. This is the, the Russian Catholic icon of Fatima in fact, is called in you as unity. And so let's offer up a Hail Mary at the end of this uh, for the resolution to the SSPX dispute as soon as possible that we, we, can, all, we can all have uh, those on both sides do want uh, a, a regular situation to be resolved, a, a, a truly full communion, a full regular situation. So let's pray for that with a Hail Mary. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus is King. <laughs>